Do you remember where you were when we elected a Sasquatch president? How about when you learned Ben Franklin was a robot? Or first heard Stalin's mixtape? I'm Zach Powers. I'm Brian Flynn, and we host The Revisionists. Each episode, one person explains real history and another tells an alternate version. And the winner becomes the truth. We let comics from Denver and around the country run wild through history. It's an in-depth look at history, but with more Babadooks. Check out The Revisionists, available every other Saturday. Wherever you get podcasts and at revisionistpodcast.com. The John of All Trades Podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we speak. You have all made it to the dance. You have all made it, made it, Coming to you from the X-Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to John's Audio Resume, Volume 9. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And it is nice to talk to you under slightly different circumstances. Last, nope, not last week, two weeks ago's episode, I reposted with Patrick Sheridan, and that was um, very, very difficult to do. That was not a happy episode for me, but it was therapeutic to get my feelings out there when they were as raw as they were. I mean, why have a show if you're not willing to share that with your listeners? Like, why would I not share that with you? Patrick meant something to me. I was unable to attend his memorial service, which was also a huge bummer. But I feel good putting that episode out into the world because Patrick touched so many lives including mine, that although I wish the circumstances were different, I'm happy that I got to share that episode again, and I hope you got something out of it too. So we're back on this series, this John's Audio Resume series, and when last we left off, I just finished up my undergraduate degree at CSU, and I'm getting ready to go into grad school. I finished up this really boring lifeguard stint. That was like a weird so long to my undergraduate college career because going into grad school, that's like serious school. That's like the sort of border town between being a dumb college kid and having a real job. It's like you have a lot more responsibility and you have a lot more to do and you're sort of much more autonomous, but you know, it's not exactly the real world either. So as part of the gig for this, one of the reasons I knew I didn't want to get a real job is I was in no way equipped for that. Like, I did not have the maturity or the temperament or even the desire to get a job at that point. I was having too much fun in college. And part of the reason for that was my first two years of college, in particular the first year, I was dating a girl who was still in high school, which at the time, I mean, that was a great relationship. The first two years of our relationship were really fun. She came up to CSU. So she was a freshman. I was a sophomore. I had an apartment off campus. It was great. That was by far and away academically my worst year simply because I was preoccupied with her and having my own apartment. We were drinking all the time. It was great. We had a fun, fun time. But then like I realized I was kind of missing out on certain aspects of college and our relationship started to deteriorate for a number of reasons, which I'm not going to go into here. A lot of it was my fault as well. Uh, I, I take ownership in that. And again, I don't want to litigate the past, but 
The point is, I wasn't ready to be done with college. I felt like my first two years, while they were great in their own way, were sort of not indicative of an overall college experience. And I didn't realize that until after the fact. And so I'm approaching graduation and I'm like, I want two more years of college. And I'm good at college. Like I did really well. My GPA was right around three, six, I think. Uh, once I got into my discipline, my GPA in discipline was like really, really high. It was like three, eight, three, nine, something like that. And I just, I loved what I was doing. I couldn't believe that someone was letting me study this and like giving me credit for it. And in grad school, giving me money to study it. That was the crazy part because here's a little known law, unless you happen to do what I do, but every student that goes to college in Colorado has to take public speaking. It's like a law, it's a rule. And so that's how almost our entire department got funded. Because if every student is required to take public speaking, you need a lot of staff for that. You need a lot of cheap labor. So how do you do that? Get yourself a grad program. That's right. Get a bunch of kids. And I use the term kids loosely. But when I applied for graduate school, so I went in in 2004, my first week of grad school, I turned 23 years old. So yeah, you know what? Let's have a bunch of kids who are 18 and 19 and let's put a 22-year-old in charge. It kind of reminds me of this John Mulaney bit where he talks about, uh, and I can't remember the setup, so this may not make any sense, but it's almost like if you had a bunch of dogs, I remember what it was. He was talking about a babysitter, and this was a kid who was just two years older than him. And it's like, what is a kid who's two years older than him going to do? So it's like, these kids are 19. What's a 22-year-old going to do? Like, you don't have any real authority. And some of the people in my program actually had like real world and real life experience. Not me. I was just a snot nosed undergrad coming up because I liked school. I was good at the discipline and I wasn't ready to get a job yet. But it's like 22 year old in charge of a bunch of 19 year olds. That's like if you had a bunch of dogs and you needed a slightly more intelligent animal to look after them, what would you hire? Like a horse? So I was like a horse in charge of a bunch of dogs. And again, I fully recognize I'm lifting this bit right out of John Mulaney. But that's what the situation was like. And so all credit to John Mulaney. That's a hilarious bit that I have done zero justice to. So I apply. I get in. It's fantastic. And on the first day of grad school, like we go to orientation, two things happened. One, my favorite professor, who was also my advisor, was there. And he's like... Look, grad school is a whole different ballgame. We own you now. Like, there's going to be a lot of work that goes into this. You're going to work harder than you've ever worked. You're going to write more. You're going to read more. And this is not a program where you can just, like, not do the reading. Like, maybe you did or didn't do in undergrad. And a lot of times, I'll be honest, I didn't do the reading. But, so I freaked out at that. And I called my parents. They were at dinner. It was a Friday night. And I'm like, I don't know if I can handle this. And they're like, you're going to be fine. Just breathe. You'll be all right. Uh, I tended to freak out at every transition of my life. Up until a certain point, I think I'm better about it now. Especially when you own your own business. Very little phases you in that kind of way where you're having like an existential crisis. But freaked out nevertheless. The other thing that happened was, as I'm looking around the other people in this program, my friend Kyle was there and he went with me just like we transitioned right from undergrad to graduate school. 
he and I were together. We were buddies. It was great. We worked on projects together. We became friends through our, our same major. I didn't know like anyone else. There was this one kid. He was like this super religious dude. Uh, I knew him. I had a bunch of classes with him. Didn't particularly like him that much. Um, everyone else seemed nice enough, but as we're going around the circle, sort of introducing ourselves and talking about why we're here and what we're interested in, there's this one chick across the way who just really got under my skin. She's like, hi, I, uh, got my degree in O2. I'm really into feminist thought. I, you know, I queer theory, feminist thought, uh, I consider myself a radical separatist feminist and going on and on and on. And I'm going, oh, Jesus Christ, like we're not going to have anything in common because I'm a 22 year old, like white, straight, cisgendered asshole. And looking back on it, I fully own that now. Like I wasn't, no, I was an asshole. Like let's call a spade a shovel here. But I wasn't like evil. You know, I just remember thinking, who is this uppity bitch? Who, like, I'm not going to have anything in common with her. She probably doesn't like me already because I'm a man. And so I'm like, all right, whatever. Didn't think too much about it the rest of the day. I do remember thinking, I'm like, she's hot, though. Like, she is good looking. Um, and that that would be all right. But again, probably no chance. She And I don't know. She mentioned queer theory. Maybe she's gay. Who knows? <laughs> Come to find out. I'm across the way from her, so she goes first, or not first. She's like in the first three. I'm near the end, and I've got the obnoxious just dialed up to 11. I think I'm wearing my Mad Caddy sweatshirt. I've got a backwards hat on. I'm probably wearing like cargo shorts and flip-flops, just looking like a grade-A douche. And she told me later, she's like, who the fuck is this keg-sucking frat boy? Like, dude, go back to your fucking dorm. Like, we're here to actually, like, do some theory and do some scholarship. And you're, like, hamming it up with the professor. You're like, oh, I'm just happy to see you, bruh. And I think I said that to one of my professors in retrospect, which, good God, like, what a monster. When you think back on yourself, like, the ideal version of yourself is definitely not 22. Uh, it's like that Blink-182 song, What's My Age Again? Nobody Likes You When You're 23. Now I understand why at the age of 36. And I sort of understood that more. Uh, once I got some distance from that persona, but that was the height of my most obnoxious persona. And she's like, fuck this guy. Well, the next week we went out and we were drinking and we were smoking cigarettes together. And then I'm going to fast forward this story a little bit. So that was 2004. Uh, it's now 2016 and we've been married for it's 2016. What the fuck? It's 2018. We've been married for eight and a half years. We have two children together and we're living in our second house together. So all ended up pretty well. But that happened the first day of grad school. We looked at each other, made a snap judgment and go, nope, don't like this person. And lo and behold, we're married and she's my favorite person on earth. So what are you going to do? Anyway, the ostensible reason you listen to this podcast is, and again, I'm speculating. I have no idea why you would download this, but. The hook of the episode is that I was a public speaking instructor. And you'd think when you have like 24 students, the way it was structured was each class had 24 students. The first semester of grad school, you taught one section just to sort of get yourself ready. Second semester, you taught two sections. Third semester, you again taught two sections. 
And your fourth and final semester, you taught one section again. You also had the option of teaching for summer. You could apply for that. Uh, I did that. That's like an entire public speaking curriculum jammed into four weeks. I don't recommend doing that if you can avoid it because you'll end up writing an entire 10-minute speech in one day. It's a nightmare. I can't imagine those kids actually having to do that. But regardless, you'd think getting ready to teach 24 students when you've probably never done that before would take a lot of training. In CSU, they did it in three days. And I'll admit, those three days were great. Like, they did a bang-up job. But at the end of those three days, you're thinking to yourself, okay, I am going to go stand in front of these students, ask them to pay attention to me, and try and teach them something. What the fuck am I doing? I must be out of my goddamned mind. And so I thought about that first day, and I'm like, what do I do? Like, how do I handle this? And I remember getting my attendance sheet, and I looked at it, and the first name was this kid... He was, uh, I came to find out later when we did like introduction speeches that he was from Dubai and his name was Saeed Al-Saeed, which I found out again through his introductory speech means happy the happy. And I'm like, wow, what a fun name. Cool. <laughs> Good for you. But I remember looking at it. I'm like, that's the first name. Come on. Cause I wasn't entirely confident in how to pronounce it. And I didn't want the, like some of the first words out of my mouth to be me mispronouncing some kid's name. Like that's just uncool. That's not getting off on the right foot. So I came up with this trick that I thought was really good. And what I did was I just went around the room and I said, introduce yourself to me. Tell me your name. Tell me where you're from. And just like a general getting to know you. And then I'd ask them some non sequitur question. Cause I wanted to see how they thought and how they responded sort of in the moment. And I still do that if I'm ever interviewing someone for a job. I'd ask him weird questions like who would win in a fight, Mr. Clean or the brownie paper towel man? And I really didn't care about the answer. I still assert that Mr. Clean would kick the brownie paper towel man's ass because I think Mr. Clean would, he'd be good with that mop. He'd be like, you know, Donatello has the staff and the Ninja Turtles. I think Mr. Clean would be like that. And yeah, he would wreck that fool, especially the new brownie paper towel man. It looks like Ben Affleck and like a huge puss. But be that as it may, went around the room and that way when they said their own names, I could note like in my attendance book how everyone pronounced their names and what they like to go by. And then from that point forward, we were off on the right foot together. thought that was a pretty great move. I still do actually now all these years later. I'm like, you know, that's actually pretty sound thinking. Good for you. Way to go, John X. But you're standing up there. You get through the first class. No one dies. It's fine. And then you have ongoing sort of mentorship and training all through that first semester. You check in, you get ideas for assignments, ideas for lecture topics, group activities. Like you have a guide. And our guide was Dr. Kari Anderson at CSU, and she was tremendous. I adore Kari. I'm Facebook friends with her today. I went up to CSU and spoke to the grad students just, God, when was that? That was last fall. What month are we in? It's February. So like last November, I feel like I was just up there talking to the grad students about my career and I wouldn't do that if I didn't think what she did was valuable and if she wasn't an exceptional professional. She is. She's terrific. And the guidance that she gave us, I thought was just very, very helpful and very insightful. 
So you take them through a number of different units. You've got your sort of introductory speech. You've got a tell a story speech. So tell me a good story. Like how do you structure the beats of a story? And then you've got an informative speech, take a topic and basically like tell us something we didn't know. When I took this class as an undergrad, I did it about professional wrestling and I got a 96 on it. My instructor said, this is probably my favorite informative speech ever. And based on that feedback and then the fact that I got a 96 on my policy speech too, I'm like, yep, this is the major I need. And so I knew sort of how life-changing this class could be because it set me on the course that I am currently on. Like doing well in that class and realizing I have a talent for it and a passion for it was just enormously helpful. So I thought, okay, I want to take this seriously. Like I want to do well. There was one unit that I didn't really care for. Uh, I don't think they teach it anymore. I'm not going to embarrass anyone by naming it here, but it came after the policy speech and before the commemorative speech. So the policy speech was the big one of the semester, and it was where you advocate for some sort of policy change. And knowing this is college kids, every single semester, you got one guaranteed about lowering the drinking age to 18. You got one about why they should pay college athletes. Uh, you got one usually about seniors and driving for some reason. I had a debate class, and I ended up using that topic too. For some reason, like – that ended up just being a, a topic that a lot of college kids use. I don't really know why. But um, those are the big ones that I really remember. And then you have your commemorative speech. So that's like a toast. You know, like you're commemorating someone. You want to – not eulogize is the wrong word, but how do you pay tribute to them? And that speech is usually really fun, and it's a great way to end the semester. And what's funny about teaching public speaking is you are up there three times a week for an hour talking to these kids or engaging them or like facilitating, like you'll have them do group assignments or whatever, or just like exercises, but you have to keep the class moving. And so you get really good at public speaking, whether you want to or not, just by sheer repetition. And the fact that I watched... Over the course of that class, so you've got five speeches, right? Six speeches times, call it 25 students. So that's what, 150 a semester or 150 per class. So 150 plus 300 plus 300 plus 150, that's what, 900? And then add in summer classes. So you've seen over a thousand speeches in the course of two years. You end up being pretty good at it, which set off my career as a corporate trainer. I remember I was at the PR firm and my boss was a trainer and I like, he did media training for all the staff. And I remember being in there. I'm like, I know these rhythms. Like I know the feedback he's going to give because I have given this over a thousand times now to these students. So I think I know what I'm talking about. He ended up utilizing me for media training. And then I ended up doing that when I was in my corporate gig. And then I've done that now. The, the skills just really apply. So getting that concentrated experience in an environment where you're sort of forced to get good at it quickly was really, really helpful for my career. And additionally, 
You're dealing with a bunch of pissy college kids who probably don't want to listen to you. I mean, some classes are better than others, but you've always got one or two little dickheads in there who, and I mean, it's almost always males. I hate to generalize that, but in my experience, I didn't have trouble with nearly as many female students as I did males. So take that for what you will. That's just my experience. I would never paint with a broad brush beyond that. In my experience, I had more dick guys in the class than dick girls. Funny. The term dick girls. Good one. So dealing with students like that, you will see everything you are ever going to see in terms of someone freaking out over public speaking. I've had people have meltdowns and cry in the hallway. I've had people be on the verge of fainting. I've had people forget their speech and have to do it in my office one-on-one with me. Deliver their speech one-on-one to me. I would much rather be in front of 25 people than one. Have you ever tried to give a speech to one person? I had a corporate training gig once where I had to give a three-day training to four people. That is a long fucking three days. And it takes a lot out of you. You crash. I remember I had Adam Caton Holland on this show, who's on the True TV show, Those Who Can't. And we were talking about stand-up and being on the road. I'm like, the only thing I can really relate this to is when I would go on the road and have to do trainings. And particularly that one where you've got four people. So, like, it's taking a lot out of you. And the people there, like, they can't sort of zone out for any period of time. You're, like, locked into each other. It's it's like this marriage where both of you kind of want to escape, but you can't. Maybe it's like the movie The Breakup. You have this sick apartment. Or maybe corporate overlords that expect you to complete this training if you are me and take this training if you are them. So you need each other, but neither of you really wants to be there. Having been through that now, it's like after teaching public speaking in college and grad school, I'm like, I can, I can do any training in any environment. I really don't care. I am fearless now. It's fantastic. And granted, it's slightly different once you get into the professional world. Like the the circumstances are different. It's not, you know, just you getting up and delivering this sort of academic presentation to a classroom full of people. You need to prepare people contextually, which is fine. You adapt to that, but you have the raw skills really dialed in. It's fantastic. The other thing that is of note here is that I remember I had some students who, were, who would be like, this class is pointless. Why are we even taking this? Like, I'm never going to have to do this. I'm an engineer. I'm an accountant. I am a scientist, whatever, right? I had people in majors who were like, this isn't my major. I have no plans on doing this. Like, I'm not a politician. I'm not a business person. I'm not, you know, a public relations professional. And I'm like, all right, fair enough. And I didn't have a good response to them at that point. I do now. And I remember I was preparing one of our executives when I was at my corporate gig. And I said to him, I'm like, Jeff, what was your major in college? And he said, chemical engineering. I said, when you were a chemical engineering student at Texas A&M University, however many years ago you were there, did you ever think you'd have to do this much public speaking? And he said, no, absolutely not. I never would have guessed that in a million years. But I'll tell you, once you get to my position, do you know how much engineering I actually do? 
And I'm like, I have no idea how much engineering you actually do. And he goes, none. I haven't done any engineering in probably a decade. You know what I do a lot of? Public speaking. He's like, so it's funny. If I could go back in time, I think I would tell myself, you should pay attention at this. Because once you get to my level, if you don't have an aptitude for it and you don't have an interest and, you know, a an appreciation for it, it's very career limiting. So if you are ambitious, if you have designs on upper levels of whatever your profession is, remember that they're going to take you away from whatever your vocation probably is and you are going to end up doing managing public speaking, and more public relations than you ever thought you would have to. So remember that in whatever career you're in. If you want to ascend, you're going to end up needing someone like me who specializes in this. And how terrifying is that? It's awful, isn't it? What's crazy in the course of doing this, so actually I'm going to let that rest there for a minute because I think that's incredibly valuable and I'm just about to skip past it. Whatever you are doing, eventually they are going to make you do public speaking and public relations. If you have designs on the higher levels of whatever your profession is. That's inevitable. It's tragic for many of you. And it's also hilarious for someone like me. Because there have been times where I have made my money just by teaching remedial public speaking to people. And it's like, look... If you'd paid attention in college, or maybe you should take advanced public speaking, you wouldn't need me and you'd save yourself a lot of money. But thankfully, no one listens and they do need me. So it ends up working out pretty well. And not to be smug about that, but very rarely do you get to be sort of smug about what you do. And this is one of those cases where people who would probably talk shit about your major end up needing you later on. I mean, living well is the best revenge. What can I say? So you teach that first semester, you get it under your belt, and then you're like an old hand at it. But then you have to teach two classes, and that sucks, especially when it comes to grading. One thing that is a pet peeve of mine is when teacher friends of mine on Facebook will get on there and bitch about grading stuff. It's like, look, I know grading sucks, but there are pros to your job and there are cons to it. Um, If all of us spent like bitched as much about the cons of our job as you do about grading, Facebook would become even more of an unpleasant place than it already is. So please just don't bitch about the grading. We know grading sucks. It can't be fun. I speak from experience. I didn't enjoy it. I used to do it after midnight because I, in grad school, you have this insane workload where you're reading constantly. You're writing something like a thousand pages uh, a semester. That might be a little bit much, but you're writing hundreds and hundreds of pages a semester. Uh, And then on top of that, you have these ungrateful little shits that you're dealing with and you have to grade all their speeches and all their papers and stuff. And so it takes its toll on you and you want to bitch about it. Well, bitch to other teachers. It's fine. But I used to grade after midnight. MTV used to show reruns of the show Made. You remember that show where kids would be like, I'm a nerdy kid, but I want to be a basketball player. And they'd get like some basketball coach to coach them up and the episode would end with them sort of uh, doing their basketball thing or becoming a bodybuilder or the prom queen or an opera singer or whatever it was. 
that show was great background noise while I was grading speeches because I used to take really intense notes while they were talking. And then I was able to sort of have a state of relaxed concentration where I was remembering their speeches while this was on in the background. If I tried to do it in silence, didn't work. I don't know why the wires were crossed in my brain, but that's not unique to me either. Having the wires crossed in my brain, because one thing I told people, I led this company training as I alluded to in my corporate gig. It was the best thing I've done in my career. And at the end of it, when we would do like, we'd put them on camera and we'd like, it was the last exercise. We'd ask them a question that they didn't know what the question was. And we'd film them and we're like, all right, let's see how well you've internalized all of the trainings we've given you over the last two or three days. And then we'd watch the video back and talk them through give them a nice hug and off they went. But what I was said to him before I did that, I'm like, look, I will not ask you to do anything here that I am either unwilling to do myself or that I have not done already. Like I guarantee you, whatever it is, I will have done it or I am willing to do it myself. And I also say to them, I admire you all for having the courage to go through this. And I say this to anyone who's willing to speak in public for any reason, because it's not easy. And I'm on the flip side of that because I used to have a lot of social anxiety. I don't know why. I don't know where it comes from. But small talk used to freak me out and give me panic attacks, which you might think public relations is an odd career choice for someone who is like that. And you might be wrong or you might be right. I'm not really sure, but sometimes I'd go to events and I'd have to go lock myself in a bathroom stall and just cry for a minute just because I was having a panic attack because I was so freaked out by the social interaction that I was actually more comfortable in front of an audience. Getting up in front of people and holding the floor, I liked the challenge of that and I liked the hierarchical nature of that. So I told them, I'm like, if I'm ever weird to you in the elevator, just understand that for some reason, I'm more, more comfortable up here addressing all of you at once than I am sometimes one-on-one. -on -one. And I recognize that is not the case for most of you. So the fact that you are willing to get out of your comfort zone and get up here and do this uh, is a credit to you. I adore you and I deeply admire you for it. And one thing I tell people about public speaking, a lot of people, when they get presented with the opportunity to do it, they look at it as a burden or an obligation or something that they have to do, even though they don't want to. And insofar as those things are true, and I'm sure they are, it is also an opportunity. Anytime you are invited to speak publicly, it is because you either have some insight some intelligence, some new angle on something that most other people don't have. And the fact that you were invited to present it or even in a small group setting at your company, if you're working on a project at some point, you are going to have to tell people about it, either to keep the project going, get new funding, or there will be some measurable outcome that you need to achieve where you need someone else's buy-in. And how are you going to do that? You have to present it. So look at it as an opportunity. Speak with confidence. 
Be assertive. Go up there with intent. And own the floor for as long as you have it. This, to me, is one of the most important things I have ever taken away from any of my schooling. And I don't know that I would have arrived here without the opportunity to teach public speaking. So I am intensely grateful for the opportunity and the trust and the faith that Colorado State University put in me and the other people in our program to guide these kids. And I hope that at least one of them, through taking my class, said, you know what? I am pretty good at this. I like what we're studying. This is going to be my major. And I hope they are pursuing their dreams in the same way that I have gotten to pursue mine. While I said the city of Golden was my favorite job of all time, and for some reasons it really was, this one is probably the most important one I've ever had in terms of jobs that someone has paid me for. So what can I say? This was a good one, and I'm very, very grateful for it. All right, let's play the outro. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. I can teach you to do public speaking. I can also do public relations, training, content, engagement. Check us out. You'll see what our capabilities are. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. They've been with us since the beginning. They are a fantastic firm. If you're communicating online, they are the best resource for you to get your message seen by the people who need to see it most. Number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Like us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and what's this? Instagram, all under the same handle, J-O-A-T pod. Instagram is the new one. Facebook's the only place for exclusive episode previews. Get the jump on brand new episodes on Mondays, Facebook only. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. Available on iTunes and Stitcher or at the John of All Trades homepage, J-O-N of All Trades.us. All right, what else can I tell you? I'll be back here next week with our 10th job, and then we're going to take a little break, and we're going to come back to interviewing people. That's right. John's audio resume series isn't ending. We're just pressing pause on it and going back to a more traditional format. So until I hear you back here next week for John's audio resume volume 10, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.